and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Stories Season 3. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today we are talking about Season 3, Episode 5, Homecoming. In particular, I'll cover how Buffy's competition with Cordelia and the action plot interweave seamlessly, underlying unspoken conflicts that ratchet up the tension, the way just a few key scenes or dialogue lines show developing relationships between the characters, and Mr. Trick as a villain. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Homecoming was written and directed by David Greenwald. We start with an opening conflict, as we should. Buffy is sitting at a table at the Bronze with Willow, Xander, Cordelia, and Oz. The others are talking about how they should get to the homecoming dance. Xander suggests a bus after someone mentions perhaps getting a limo. Oz says if cost is an issue, they could use his van. Cordelia rejects that idea because the homecoming queen doesn't go to the dance in a van. Xander mentions that she is not elected yet, but quickly adds that she definitely will be. This short discussion, and we haven't gotten to the conflict that will be key to this episode yet, but there is that underlying economic tension there. We saw that a little before, less directly, where Cordelia was talking about her vacations at the uh, beginning of season two, and Xander and Willow we saw walking through the graveyard trying to come up with ways to fill their time. And here it runs through as well, Xander clearly not thinking that he'll have money for a limo and trying to persuade everyone to go in a less expensive way, Oz being sensitive to that and Cordelia being mostly oblivious. This is a great example of having differences between your key characters that are not necessarily things that they argue over or maybe even talk about directly, but are there and create ongoing tension in ordinary situations. Willow now says she likes the idea of a limo and if they all split it, the cost won't be too bad. Now Buffy, admits that she is not sure she's going. And Willow asks, why wouldn't she? She has tickets, unless she doesn't have a... And Scott walks over. Willow cuts off the word date and turns it awkwardly into day and says, day, we should take a day or two to think about it. Cordelia dives right in and says, what's going on here? Did Scott not ask her to the homecoming dance? And Buffy says, thanks, Cordelia. Humiliation's really good for my color. Scott awkwardly says that he assumed Buffy would think it was corny, but if she wants to go, he's in. And she responds that she's in if he wants to. And he starts saying, well, he'll go if she wants to. Oz helpfully cuts this off and says, the judges will accept that as a yes. This interplay with Cordelia is another great example of a character whose nature 
not so much creates conflict, but forces conflict into the open. Because Cordelia is going to say what she thinks, observe what's going on, and it pushes other characters to deal with their issues rather than keep them inside or sidestep them. Creating a character who genuinely acts this way can be a great thing for your story, especially because a lot of people don't say what their conflicts are. A lot of characters don't. And many writers, including myself, sometimes shy away from conflict when we really need to have it. So that Cordelia type of character can be such a benefit as you're writing because she can say or um, they or he can say the things that the others are not wanting to put out there on the table. Scott now offers to get Buffy another drink, but she says she's a little tired. She's calling it a night, but she kisses him and says she's looking forward to the dance. So both that exchange with Cordelia and this very small moment with Scott seed or foreshadow what will happen in the episode. And it also includes its own conflict that keeps us engaged until we get to our main story. The next scene escalates the tension. Angel is pacing in front of a roaring fire. He's breathing hard, appears distressed. He hears someone coming, yanks the curtains open, and it is Buffy. Uh, He seemed ready to attack. He sees it's her. He backs off. She has brought him a paper bag with a container of blood. The way he holds it, um, inhales the scent as he's turned away from her, we can tell he so needs to drink that now. But he sets it aside rather than drink in front of her. And she's asking how he is. He says um, he's in pain, but it's less. The way he says it makes us doubt that it's much less. She tells him she hasn't told Giles and the others that he's back. And Angel says, Giles, which tells us that he is thinking about the last time he saw Giles when he tortured Giles. Buffy goes on to say she's not going to tell anyone they won't understand that he's better and she'll keep helping him get better but everything's different now. She's a senior, she's thinking about college, she's involved with someone Angel draws in a quick breath, spins around, and then holds holds himself steady. Buffy says he's a nice, solid guy, the guy she's seeing who makes her happy, and that's what she needs, someone she can count on. So, of course, we cut to Scott the next day at school saying he doesn't think they should see each other anymore. Buffy's confused. Did she miss something? And he tells her she seemed, before he started seeing her, so full of life, like a force of nature. And now she just seems distracted. And she tells him she knows, but she's getting better, that he'll see a drastic distraction reduction from now on. And jokes, uh, say that 10 times fast, drastic distraction reduction. Which, by the way, would be really hard. But Scott does not want to keep trying, and he walks down the hall, leaving her alone. We are approaching the 10% mark of the episode, and typically at 10% through, we see our story spark or inciting incident that gets our main plot rolling. 
For Buffy's personal emotional story, I think that was it. Scott breaking up with her. That is a huge part of what motivates her throughout this episode. When I first watched season three as it was airing, I think I was really surprised about Scott breaking up with Buffy. I felt he was being unfair. Later when I watched the episodes more back to back, you can see a little bit of what Scott is saying. When he was first trying to ask her out, Buffy gave him completely mixed messages, but she was always on her way somewhere about to do something presumably exciting and important. Then in Beauty and the Beasts, when Angel comes comes back she is not just distracted but she's telling him she's she's not feeling well she won't say where she's going but it's not like before where she's filled with purpose she's really upset seems kind of out of it and then in this episode right at the beginning they finally agree to go to the dance and then she leaves and doesn't want to hang out with him now I'm not saying that that makes him a good guy because it would be nice if you're seeing someone and they seem unhappy or upset that rather than break up, you might want to say, hey, is something going on? Can I help? I am only pointing it out to say that it is not quite as much of a surprise as it seemed to me the first time around. I can see completely why it's a shock to Buffy because she is not stepping outside of herself and seeing how Scott might feel. My guess is he didn't ask her to the dance because he knew he was going to break up with her and then was sort of caught unaware the night before. At 4 minutes 51 seconds in, so just a little past our 10% mark in the episode, we get a story spark in our action plot. We see a view of Buffy alone. It's through binoculars. And then we switch to this parked van with these somewhat ominous looking guys who look a little bit like young Arnold Schwarzeneggers and they're twins and they have these TV monitors showing Buffy in school and lots of tech. They are linked to Mr. Trick's lair uh, and to a man in a wheelchair who is watching them. I'm, I don't think he's named, so I'm going to call him the commander because he is running the show with these two guys. Mr. Trick walks out, sees Buffy on the screen, and says she's the target. And we cut to credits. So now we have gotten that action part of the plot going. We come back and we are at City Hall. A thin, nervous-looking guy, Alan, goes into the mayor's office and says he is sorry to bother the mayor, but he shows him a printout with photos of those twins and says they were spotted in town. They're wanted for capital murder and terrorism. The mayor, though, sitting behind his large desk, is a bit distracted. He is smelling the paper and he has Alan hold out his hands, which Alan very very tentatively does as if he thinks the mayor is going to chop them off. But Mayor Wilkins says his hands are not clean enough. Remember to clean under your fingernails. That's where germs live. And I remember in, there's no DVD commentary for this episode, but in a later one, Joss Whedon comments or one of the writers comments on how they thought it was so fun to have this villain who has, who is super powerful, but has this fear of germs. The mayor tells Alan to put the twins under surveillance, and he wants to know if there are any other colorful characters that come into town. 
Alan assures him that he'll take care of it, and the mayor says, you have all my faith. We cut to school where school yearbook photos are being taken. The expressions on each of the characters' faces fit so well. Willow is uh, has a happy expression, but it's taking a long time for the photographer to shoot. And just as she makes a face, of course, that's when the camera clicks. Cordelia is checking out the competition for Homecoming Queen, critiquing each girl, cataloging her faults. Xander or Willow comment that Buffy is missing the photos, and Cordelia says she'll go remind her. Buffy's in the library training with Faith, and Cordelia is heading that way. In the library, Buffy is punching really hard, and Faith tells her guys should break up with her more often. It gives her quality rage. And Faith tells her, screw Scott, he was a jerk, and suggests that since Buffy already has the tickets, they can go to the dance together. Pick up some guys, use them and discard them. Or she says studs, and Buffy agrees, except maybe on the using the studs part, though that might be fun. We are now getting to what I think of as the one-quarter twist, the plot turn that generally comes about 25% through the story, and it comes from outside the protagonist and spins the story in a new direction. Here we have a few scenes that fit the bill. About 10 minutes, 15 seconds in, Cordelia, distracted by trying to get more votes for herself, skips going to the library and starts talking to some other students. This spins the story because Buffy missing the photos due to Cordelia getting distracted ultimately puts the two of them in the crosshairs of the vampires and demons that are targeting Buffy and Faith. In the next scene, Buffy is in the courtyard asking the teacher of her favorite class, she describes it as the class that changed my life, for a recommendation. And I love the title of the class. I have to think the writers made this up as their dream class. Contemporary American Heroes from Amelia Earhart to Maya Angelou. But the teacher does not know who Buffy is. And when Buffy tries to remind her where she sat and how much she loved the class, the teacher says, were you absent a lot? At lunch, Cordelia is campaigning. Buffy is sitting with her friends and relaying how her favorite teacher didn't remember her. She's like a non-person. And at her old school, she was the prom princess and a cheerleader. And she named some other things and says the yearbook was like the story of me. And now she'll just be one tiny photo. Xander tells her she won't even be that. The photos were done yesterday and didn't Cordelia tell her. At about 12 minutes in, Buffy confronts Cordelia, who genuinely doesn't seem to get it, and she says, what's the big? But Buffy is tipped over the edge here, and she says Cordelia could have thought of someone else just once. And then Cordelia says something like, just because you were guacamole queen when you were three doesn't mean that Buffy knows anything about what Cordelia's life is like or what it's like to campaign for homecoming queen. And Cordelia also tells her it involves being part of the school and having actual friends and says, I'd like to see you try to win the crown. Buffy says, then you will. And she says, you've awakened the prom queen within and that crown is going to be mine. 
we cut to Trick saying competition, that it's a beautiful thing, that it makes us all strive, and we all have a desire to win. So this is a really nice linking of the two storylines we have here. Buffy will be competing with Cordelia, and all these vampires and demons are competing to kill both slayers, it turns out. Also, I love this scene. I had forgotten. This is where I got the name of my publishing and production company, Spiny Woman LLC. Trick is walking around the group of competitors and giving this inspiring speech. And he says, whether human, vampire, whatever the hell you are, my brother, spiny looking head things. I ain't never seen that before. So obviously, I took Spiny from that. So the vampire team, we'll find out, is Lyle Gorch and his wife. And that is, Lyle Gorch was from season one, the Bad Eggs episode. So it's kind of fun to see him again. And it's a nice way to use a side character who was introduced. You may as well bring one back when you have this kind of group setting and it makes it easier for us to remember who's who. We learn that they have all made deposits to compete. So this goes with what we saw of Mr. Trick in Faith, Hope, and Trick. He is the big picture guy and he's very enterprising. He's running this for money. And I'm sure he would like to get rid of the Slayers. He tells them the first target is Buffy. They know a lot about her. The second is Faith, who is a little more elusive, but both will be together and ready for the killing at one particular time. And he ends with, ladies, gentlemen, spiny-headed looking creatures, welcome to Slayer Fest 98. So this too, it's 14 minutes in, but this is a one quarter turn in our action plot where we find out the point of Slayer Fest and Trick sets it all in motion. And all our competitors are gathered and it's time to begin. This also made me think about Trick versus Spike as early season villains. And Mr. Trick, I do like him, Yet, I think I mentioned before, some of the plots, the Faith, Hope, and Trick action plot felt a little bit flat to me. This episode, I love this interplay between the stories, but Trick doesn't engage me quite as much as Spike did. And I think the difference is, though Trick is running the show here, he is and tells us he is the big picture guy and the behind the scenes kind of guy. He isn't going to directly confront Buffy. Um, He didn't before. He was directing things. He was setting things in motion. But he's not the guy who wants to be on the front line fighting. And Spike completely was that guy. When he wasn't able to do that because he was in a wheelchair, he was nonetheless longing to be on the front lines. He wants to dive in the action. Trick wants to stay behind the scenes and manipulate things. Now the master in season one also was of necessity behind the scenes because he was stuck underground, but we knew his plan, all of his efforts were directed toward getting out and taking over the world. With Mr. Trick, we don't know what his main goal is or his main plan is. And I wish that we did because I think that would make him more intriguing 
We cut to Willow's room. She is trying on different outfits behind a screen. She wants Xander to tell her which one looks best because she wants to drive Oz wild. But before that, let's take a quick break. some listener comments and I have been behind on this. I record in advance so apologies to those who commented a while ago. Um, On Twitter, NerdWriterGirl said, just discovered your Buffy Story podcast combining my two favorite things and I am here for it. Just started the Becoming episodes. And I am so happy that you found the podcast and it's exactly why I started it. So I think that this is the same person who commented on YouTube, Carrie H. Author, where I have started to upload the podcast. I have all of season one there now and there may be more by the time you hear this. And she says, I'm so happy you're uploading these episodes onto YouTube. I love the episodes that are up, especially as you get into season three, which is my favorite. I don't rewatch a lot of season one. I have a few favorites, but you can tell they're testing the waters in this season. And season two is so much of an improvement. I agree. It is really interesting to see what is done in season one, but it isn't quite what I think of as Buffy. And then season two gets closer to that. And I feel like season three, especially with last week and today's episode, really start becoming what I think of and love most about Buffy. The other thing, um, Carrie and I corresponded, I did not realize, so thank you so much for telling me that there were only about 10 episodes showing in the podcast feeds on Apple. That should be corrected now. I had the setting uh, so that it was only showing 10. I don't know why I set it up that way, other than this is my first podcast and I didn't really know what I was doing. You should be able to go back if you want to see back episodes. If for some reason you're wherever you listen to podcasts is not showing that, you can always find them at my website, lisalilly.com, and you'll see a menu item for Buffy and the Art of Story. And also, I am working on getting all the back episodes up onto YouTube. Also on Twitter, at the Inkling Girl commented, In mid-August, I've been listening to your seasons one and two episodes with my daughter, and we enjoy them so much. The Inkling Girl went on to say uh, that I listen when I work on my paintings. I painted portraits of most of the cast a few years back because I'm that obsessed. I would really love to see some of those portraits if you want to share. I also have a comment from Steve specifically about Beauty and the Beasts. He said that he watched with his girlfriend at the time the show aired, and that was the first episode he ever saw of Buffy. So he had no idea who Angel was. And this is really interesting because it goes to that comment I made that Beauty and the Beasts was one of the first ones where if you hadn't seen previous episodes your experience would be very different. Even if you, I forgot that usually there was a previously on, but even with that, you wouldn't really grasp the dynamics of the Buffy and Angel relationship, how painful it was for her, what it meant to her. 
So for that first 20 minutes or so, at least, it would not be very clear what the issue was. And Steve said he kept interrupting to ask his girlfriend, who is that guy, whenever Angel was on. And of course, she was really annoyed because this was the big episode with Angel coming back. And she did not want to be interrupted to answer questions. So I thought that that was really fun. That is it for the comments for now. If you would like to send me your thoughts about Buffy or writing or anything related to the show, you can find me on Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. Or email me Lisa at LisaLilly.com. Xander is trying to tie the tie in his borrowed tux. Uh, He looks great in it. Each outfit Willow comes out wearing, Xander just says, uh, nice. Complimentary, but kind of non-committal. Willow helps him with the tie, and they reminisce about their eighth grade cotillion and joke about how when they're old, they'll be in neighboring rooms in the rest home. It's a really nice, quick way to show their history for new viewers and remind ongoing viewers. Xander sort of jokingly asks how far Willow and Oz have gone. She says it's none of his business and asks about Cordelia. Willow is behind the screen changing again and Xander says a gentleman never tells. Willow comes out in this beautiful black formal dress that is so flattering and she says oh yeah since when did you become a and she gets a good look at him with his tux his tie on and says gentleman. She's a little bit surprised by how grown up he looks. And then she looks down at her dress and says, ah, I know, nice. Xander says, I was going to go with gorgeous. They walk toward each other. He's saying Oz is a lucky guy. She says Cordelia is lucky in a girl way. Willow suddenly worries that she can't dance in this dress, uh, I guess because the skirt is somewhat narrow and it's, it's very long. So Xander says, that's fine, we'll, let's dance. We'll dance here. Bad idea, because as they are dancing, there is a ton of chemistry. They're moving closer and they kiss for a few moments. Then they break apart and panic, both saying, you know, I would never, and no, I would never, it must be the clothes. It's a fluke, a clothes fluke. And Xander says, and there'll be no more fluking. Willow says, we got to get out of these clothes. And then, no, I didn't mean. And Xander says, I didn't mean either. Willow waves her hands like she's grossed out. And they both just bolt away from each other. Another example of the show giving a character what she wants. But at the worst possible time, Willow has wanted Xander, had feelings for him for so long. And now, finally, he's returning this. He's seeing her as attractive. But it's when she's with Oz and so happy with Oz. I feel like this moment is believable because we do see this change in both of them in their prom clothes they do look so grown up and you can see how Willow suddenly appears different to Xander. I don't know that it was this huge change for Willow because she always had feelings for Xander. She always saw this side of Xander but he did not see the side of Willow. 
Also, I think that we have seeded pretty well in previous episodes, Xander having this protectiveness about Willow and this jealousy of Oz. It's in a joke or it's in concern, but it is there. And in the best light, we can say that perhaps Willow having this boyfriend, Oz appreciating how attractive Willow is, has made Xander see it too. In the worst light, we can say now that Xander can't have Willow, he wants her. We could also say in the best light that he really has continued to see her as his pal he hung out with through childhood. And it's this moment as they're getting ready for this formal dance that causes that shift in his thinking. We cut to Buffy in the library. She is in front of a whiteboard with photos of her competition in the homecoming queen race. Willow, Oz, and Xander are sitting and listening to her talk about how a campaign is won like a war. She's talking about strategy that they should be able to get the fringe slash musician vote because of Oz. These are people who normally don't vote and Willow can help her with the data. Buffy says that it isn't that different from all the other popularity contests. She's done them before, but she says, the only difference is this time I'm not actually popular. At about 19 minutes in, Cordelia walks into the library and sees all of this. Buffy gives a sort of faux apology, says there's no reason they can't be friends. Cordelia quickly agrees and asks Willow how the database is coming, looks at Xander, who says he got her flyers. On the way out, Xander says, she's my girlfriend. And Willow says, it's just that she needs it so much more than you. Oz, on his way out, says, as Willow goes, so goes my nation. And they all leave Buffy alone. Giles comes out and says it seems like a lot of fuss for a little title. Buffy tells him it's just for fun. No one takes it that seriously, but she squeezes the glass bottle she's holding so tight that it breaks. We are now nearing the midpoint of the episode where typically we'll see either a strong commitment by the protagonist throwing caution to the wind or a major reversal. I see the all-out campaigning will watch Buffy do as her commitment here. And the previous scene, though a little bit early, could be her major reversal where her closest friends let her down. The campaigning is shown in a really fun montage that cuts between our competitors for killing the Slayer as they are training and Cordelia and Buffy. Montages can be tricky, sort of like dreams, whether they work or not. I feel like Buffy uses them so well because they tell us what is happening in the plot. They move the plot forward and get across characters and conflict. So when we talk about Mr. Trick's Slayer Fest, we see the spiny creature flipping his arms and these spiny weapons come out and he shoots them across the room. The Gorches are making out on the couch. Buffy at school covers one of Cordelia's posters with her own. And we see various scenes that tell us how much everyone is competing and working. In the next scene, Buffy comes down the stairs, pretends to drop her notebook, and Scott picks it up. 
We're about 21 minutes in, and Scott tells her he respects her for doing this, and she has his vote. She starts to tell him, no, he doesn't have to vote for her, but then she says, thank you. And it looks very natural, but after he leaves, she opens her little notebook and checks off his name. Then another guy walks by, and she once again drops her notebook. Buffy also is giving out cupcakes, but we see Cordelia take them away from people and hand out gift baskets instead. So in earlier episodes, like Faith, Hope, and Trick, I think I said this, and Beauty and the Beasts, I struggled a bit with the action plot not always having a strong midpoint, though we saw strong or at least defined midpoints in the personal plots. Here, in a way, that's also true. Those competitors uh, in Slayer Fest training, that doesn't seem like a huge reversal for Buffy. We already knew that Slayer Fest was coming and they already looked pretty formidable as foes. So where we really do get this midpoint is what I just mentioned in the Cordelia Buffy competition. I feel like it works better in this episode because these two are so very integrated and we have that theme of competition linking them. And it's clearer here to me that the main story really is Buffy and Cordelia and Buffy's internal struggle with having lost her identity as the popular girl and prom queen and now her new boyfriend and how much harder her life is because she's the slayer. So these are so well integrated. And then we have the Willow Xander subplot, which also has very strong turns in it. At 22 minutes in, Buffy approaches Willow, who is very nervous, and guilts her into giving Buffy a look at Cordelia's database. Outside, in another example of integrating the plot, the twins are listening and watching through their binoculars. We cut to Buffy walking with Jonathan. He's eating a cupcake. She tells him she's always felt they have a special bond. He cuts her off and lets her know that Cordelia gave him $6, which can buy a whole lot of cupcakes. I guess in the late 90s, that could buy you a whole lot of cupcakes. These days, at least in Chicago, that would buy you maybe one and a half cupcakes at one of those uh, fancy cupcake stores, or maybe only one. Buffy confronts Cordelia about literally buying votes. Cordelia says, is that any more tacky than your faux I'm shy but deep campaign posters? Buffy says, yes. Cordelia tells her this whole trying to be like me thing really isn't funny anymore. Buffy, who is not amused, says, I was never trying to be like you. And when was it funny? Their feud escalates from there. Cordelia disparages Buffy's past which she doesn't seem to quite believe that Buffy was really popular. Buffy is calling Cordelia shallow and mean. Cordelia says at least she has two parents, unlike some people. Xander and Willow come in in the middle of this. Xander tries to stop it before they say anything they'll regret. And Cordelia says, you crazy freak. And Buffy says, vapid whore. So obviously, uh, they did not heed Xander's advice. Xander pulls Cordelia away. Willow looks stricken and says to Buffy, this is just... And we cut right into a new scene where Willow finishes this thought to Xander. They're sitting on her bed. 
And she says, the worst thing that's ever happened, ever, we have to do something. Xander agrees, but when he looks at her now, it's like he's seeing her for the first time. And Willow says she means Buffy and Cordelia. And he switches gears and agrees, yes, that's what he meant. But how is it their fault? And Willow tells him they both felt so guilty about the fluke that they overcompensated, which I haven't mentioned their body language as Buffy was campaigning and in other scenes, but you can see they both are feeling bad and very guilty. And even before Willow said that, I took it that that, at least for her, was why she was helping Cordelia. Xander understands what she's saying, but he says he's just in hell. He thought being a senior and having a girlfriend at last would be a good thing. Why wouldn't that be a good thing? Willow, though, is now distracted by, she says, his mouth when he's upset, how it moves, and she says, what are we going to do? Xander tells her, we just have to get the two of them communicating. And Willow says, I'm talking about us. At 26 minutes, 49 seconds in, Buffy gets into the limo at night. She's expecting Faith to be there, but instead it's Cordelia and she's alone. Cordelia hands her a note the friends have left, telling Buffy and Cordelia to work out their issues, that friendship is more important than who wins. And I love the PS, which is, the limo is not cheap, work it out. Cordelia took the orchid corsage because it goes with her complexion. They bicker about that. And at 27 minutes in, the driver pulls over and runs away. Buffy and Cordelia get out there in the woods and they find a TV and a VCR with a note to watch. So I think that this next scene is the three-quarter turn. Um, this is the plot turn that grows from the midpoint, but takes our story in yet another new direction. This is a bit early. You might guess, even if you haven't listened before to the podcast, I call it the three-quarter turn because quite often it's right about 75% through. With a novel, it's almost always right at 75% through. With a movie or TV show, it might be a little more like two-thirds through or it might be it's not usually later on the screen mr trick says it's slayer fest 98 the hunter and the hunted that they have 30 seconds to run for their lives and he ends faith buffy have a nice day cordelia says hello how stupid are you people she's a slayer i'm a homecoming queen at 28 minutes in there's an explosion and they both run and we cut to a commercial we come back to the dance. Oz's band is playing. Willow and Xander watch in the crowd, their shoulders slumping. Faith comes up behind them and asks what they're so mopey about. Xander denies being mopey. Uh, they're enjoying Oz's band, and he says, he's a great guy, Oz. And Willow, staring at the floor, says, he wrote this song for me. In the woods, Cordelia helps Buffy avoid a trap. Buffy then tr throws this metal trap at a guy with an assault weapon. He gets stuck in it, and she uses his own gun to threaten him into telling them who all the competitors are. He also tells them that the twins are being tracked electronically. Cordelia wants him to uh, do her an insy favor, but before she can ask him to explain to the other competitors that she is not a slayer, someone shoots at them and they run.
a quick update. The audiobook edition of The One Year Novelist, a week-by-week guide to writing your novel in one year, is now available at least on Kobo. I'll have a link in the show notes. You can get it free with a trial membership or you can buy it outright on Kobo. It will be on other platforms, but partly due to issues with coronavirus, a number of the distributors are really slow right now, including um, Audible. It takes a lot longer for things to get reviewed and be available. So as of right now, I do not see it on Audible. If you would like to get a free review copy, I do get a limited number of promotional codes through Findaway Voices, which I use for distribution. So if you are interested, you can email me, lisa at lisalily.com. I would love to, as long as I have codes left, share one with you so that you can listen and post a review wherever you like to listen to audiobooks. Back at the dance, Faith sees Scott slow dancing very close with another girl. She cuts in and says, good news, honey, um, and tells him she went to the doctor and the itching and burning should clear up soon. And she kind of gestures toward their pelvic regions and says, but we got to keep using the ointment. And then she says hi to the girl, who is not happy. So yay, Faith. At 30 minutes in, Giles tells Willow and Xander that they did a fine thing in helping Buffy and Cordelia work things out. He is going to the library for the rest of the dance, but will come back to hear the homecoming queen announcement. Willow and Xander are sitting together, but they're facing opposite directions, slumping again, looking at the floor, and Willow says, we did one fine thing. Cordelia and Buffy shelter in a cabin. Buffy tells Cordelia to find a weapon, but Cordelia's panicking like we have never seen her, except maybe when she was trapped in the basement and there was that worm bug monster outside. But I think this is more. She says she's going to die. She'll never be homecoming queen. She'll never finish high school or know if it's real between her and Xander or temporary insanity that made her think she loves him. And now she'll never get a chance to tell him. Buffy tells her they are getting out and they'll get to the library for weapons and take out all the competitors one by one, all in time for Cordelia to congratulate her on her sweeping victory as homecoming queen. Cordelia says she knows what Buffy's doing, trying to get her angry so she won't be so scared, and hey, it's working. She starts hunting for a weapon and Buffy asks her if she really loves Xander. And Cordelia says, well, he kind of grows on you like a chia pet. This is another example of giving a character what he wants. This time, Xander. We had that whole love spell episode where he wanted Cordelia to love him. Granted, it was with bad motives, but he did want that. And as he said before, he wanted a girlfriend. Now he has Cordelia, this beautiful, popular girl who loves him. And though she doesn't know it, he has just betrayed her. So this will only make everything harder for Xander. Cordelia finds a weapon, a spatula. Buffy is not too impressed, but Cordelia says that's all there was, just that or a telephone. And Buffy says, you didn't think a telephone would be helpful? They call Giles and get the answering machine. He hasn't made it to the library yet. 
in the middle of Buffy talking, the line goes dead. And she puts this together with the electronic tracking and realizes the competitors must know where they are. We get a quick scene of the spiny-headed guy asking the guy in the trap, want me to cut that leg off? And it really seems like a serious offer to help him get out of the trap. And the guy says, no thanks. So now we're about 33 minutes, 12 seconds in. This could also be that three-quarter turn here because it's a new direction for Buffy and Cordelia. And it does grow out of that midpoint where Buffy committed to winning and maybe more important, beating Cordelia. Now Cordelia says why it always ends in violence and terror when she's with Buffy. And Buffy says, Welcome to my life. And this ushers in Cordelia has been a little vulnerable with Buffy, admitting her feelings for Xander. And now Buffy is going to be vulnerable with Cordelia. And Cordelia is going to listen. Cordelia is saying all she wanted was to be homecoming queen. She didn't want to be in Buffy's life. And she doesn't get why Buffy cares about homecoming queen when she has all this meaning she can fight demons, she's strong, and so forth. And Buffy says, because this is all she does. It's all her life is. She wanted to pick up a yearbook down the road and say, I was there, I had friends, and for one moment I got to live in the world and there be proof, proof that I was chosen for something other than this. And she cocks her gun and says, besides, I look cute in a tiara. The whole scene with Buffy and Cordelia is this really nice bonding between them where they both truly listen to and talk with one another and share. The spiny guy breaks in, They fight. Cordelia struggles with the gun and shoots the wall. The twins approach outside, ready to launch. I guess these are grenades. I do not know my weapons well. Cordelia throws the gun to Buffy. It's a good throw, but the grenades launch and land inside. Buffy and Cordelia dive out a window just in time. The spiny-looking guy tries to go out a window, but it's boarded up, and he gets thrown back in and blown up. At the library, Lyle Gorch is there with his wife. She wants to kill Buffy as a wedding present for his poor brother. So a direct uh, reference to bad eggs, which is really fun. Lyle says, don't worry, the Slayer will be there as soon as she gets rid of some of their competition. After all, they've got her watcher, and poor Giles is lying on the floor, knocked out again. The Commander and Mr. Trick are in his lair. They are surprised Buffy and the girl they think is Faith have gotten away. And Trick says, give it up for the Slayers. They've got character. There's a knock on the door. Trick answers and two cops drag him away into the night. Buffy and Cordelia reach the library and see the Gorches. Buffy and the wife fight. Cordelia throws Buffy a stake. Buffy stakes the wife who dusts, but not before she knocks Buffy out. Lyle charges at Cordelia. He's talking, he's sputtering about what he's going to do to you. Cordelia straightens up, acts unfazed, and says, you'll what, rip out my innards, play with my entrails? And she goes on in that vein and says, I took out four of your cronies, not to mention your girlfriend. And he says, wife. And Cordelia says, whatever, and tells him that in the end, Buffy is just the runner-up. She's queen. And what does he think she's going to do to him? He says later, tips his hat, and runs away. 
also consistent with what he did in Bad Eggs. And I love that this minor side character is behaving exactly as we would expect him to behave. At 38 minutes in, Buffy is now awake and talking to Giles and Cordelia, and she says to Cordelia, that should teach them to mistake you for a slayer. Giles feels bad because he's the one who gave the friends the okay to do the limousine switch, but Buffy says it's all right. She and Cordelia spent some quality death time, and they got corsages. Giles says no one mentioned corsages, and they realize that's how they are being tracked, that there must be a bug in each of them. And Buffy asks for some wet toilet paper. So now we have our climax, the final confrontation between our opposing forces. And we're at 38 minutes, 40 seconds in. This climax has always felt a bit anticlimactic to me. And I think it's because that scene in the library really feels like the climax. Buffy fights uh, Gorch's wife, and I'm sorry, I don't remember her name. I don't know if we're ever given it. But she's the one who gets the closest to Buffy, actually knocks her out, and Cordelia stands up to Lyle Gorch, you know, finds herself again, and Buffy acknowledges Cordelia being really tough. So it seems like that really resolves both the personal issues and the fight, except it hasn't resolved the fight because we still have these twins out there. So we get to what I think is the climax of the main plot. The twins break into the school. They're being fed electronic data on the locations of the two slayers. They separate. They have their guns out, and they're going through the school in different rooms. Buffy has hidden at a crucial spot, and at a key moment, she throws the bug on the wet toilet paper so it sticks to one of the twins' backs. Um, I'm assuming Cordelia or Giles has done the same to the other. The twins, getting this data on the location, fire through the wall at each other and kill each other. The commander at the lair thinks that he's won because their blips go out. So also, this feels a little bit easy and quick, and I didn't care as much about the twins as I did about Buffy and Cordelia. Now we are in the falling action section of the episode. This is where in the story we tie up loose ends and sometimes, as here, we also raise story questions to keep the readers or viewers coming back for the next installment. At 40 minutes, 54 seconds in, Mr. Trick is taken to the mayor's office, and I believe this is the first time we hear the mayor's name. He introduces himself as Mayor Richard Wilkins, and he says to Trick, who has, uh, I want to say his suit is kind of a um, maroon or dark mauve color or purple, and the mayor says, that's an exciting suit, and Trick says, clothes make the man, and the mayor says, yes, but from what he understands, Mr. Trick is not a man. He goes on to tell Mr. Trick trick that he's been mayor for a long time here and he wants things to run smoothly this is an important year for him and Mr. Trick says election year and the mayor tells him something like that 
Trick is not impressed. He says if the mayor's about to tell him that that's why his kind isn't welcome here in this nice little town, that got old long before he became a vampire. But that is not what the mayor is saying. In fact, he says he can use some help dealing with those rebellious elements. He heard about Slayer Fest. It's very enterprising. He loves the name and the initiative, and that is what he needs on his team. But Trick says, what if he doesn't want to be on the team? And the mayor, seeming ominous and borderline threatening, says, oh no, that won't be an issue. So now we are wondering about the mayor. He is on the side of evil. We've had hints about him before with Snyder interacting with him, but we didn't know. Now we know he is all good with bringing a vampire onto his team, one that was trying to kill the Slayers. He wants to keep the Slayers in line. And there is something big that is happening. It's a big year for him. This scene, though to me undercuts Mr. Trick as a threat. Up to now, I had been thinking he might be the big bad for the season. And this suggests that he's not, that instead he'll be part of a team. Though it it is an open question because he clearly is not super excited about being thought of as part of the team. He likes to run the show. So it does leave us a bit unsure and wanting to come back and find out. We return to the dance where they are about to announce the homecoming queen election results. And Willow says, where are they that they're going to miss it? Cordelia and Buffy come in. Uh, Their dresses are a bit torn. Their arms are dirty from having been knocked down in the woods. And Oz says, I'm going to go with mud wrestling. Buffy says, tell you one thing, you don't want to mess with Cordelia. Xander gulps and agrees. As the announcement begins, Cordelia says to Buffy something like, after all we've been through tonight, this whole who gets to be queen thing seems, and Buffy says, pretty damn important. And Cordelia says, oh yeah. It is a first for Sunnydale. There is a tie. And then the announcement that the two other competitors have tied. Buffy and Cordelia leave together in disgust, and we go to credits. There is no DVD commentary on this episode. I am hoping there will be some in the future episodes. So that is it for the breakdown, except for spoilers and foreshadowing. If you are not staying for that, I hope you will come back next Monday for Band Candy, one of my all-time favorite episodes where all the adults in Sunnydale revert to their teenage years. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. There is so much in this episode that so quickly gives us a hint of what's to come without slowing the action at all. So this episode, I think, is a great example to look at for how to do that. That moment when Angel says, Giles, we know he is thinking of when he last saw Giles and tortured him. And when Giles learns that Angel 
is back and Buffy didn't tell him, this is, with the exception of maybe season seven, the most sharp he ever is with Buffy and the most disappointed he is in her because he says something like she doesn't respect him, she doesn't respect his work as watcher, and that sadly he must remind her that Angel tortured him. In amends, Angel goes to Giles for help. He's having these visions that are haunting him and he's troubled and Giles doesn't let him in until he has his crossbow on him and he doesn't want to help. He says something like, well, if I help you figure this out, will you feel better? Will you be less tormented? And Angel says yes. And Giles thinks it's fine that Angel is feeling tormented. And you can say, oh, maybe Giles should be able to rise above this and be more objective. But I think, of course, we we know Angel tortured him for a long time. And probably worse than physical torture, he used Jenny against Giles. And Giles is human. It's going to take him a while to get past it. All of that foreshadowed in just that second when Angel says that, and it also reminds us as viewers of that past. Then there is just uh, less of foreshadowing, and I, I think the writers were doing a fun little line for those of us who were going to rewatch. When the mayor tells Alan to put the twins under surveillance and so forth, Alan says he'll take care of it. And the mayor says, you have all my faith. So much there because faith will ultimately kill Alan and she'll work for the mayor. And even my faith, he will later call her my faith. He sees her as a daughter. So a nice, almost like call to the future. When Buffy is walking with Jonathan and she's saying she's always felt a special bond between them, she is clearly saying that in this episode just to try to get votes. The same way that Cordelia says something about, oh, she's been doing the Vulcan death grip since she was 10. And yet... Buffy and Jonathan will have a sort of special bond. In this season, she will be the one there to keep him from doing something really dangerous when he's in the clock tower with a gun. And in season four, when Jonathan remakes the world through a spell, Buffy is part of what he wants. Like, he wants to be the best of everything. And part of that, though, is working with Buffy on her team, being her friend and Buffy he will help Buffy through a couple things in that episode and afterwards she will in some ways try to help him of course in season seven he becomes an enemy or season six he becomes part of the trio that is Buffy's enemy but he is always the one who is trying to rein things in and who has the most guilt and regret. So they will have this long relationship and this bond. Not that it will always go well, but it will be there. And this moment with Faith sticking up for Buffy, Buffy will not ever know about it, but it shows us the bond between them and how important Buffy is to Faith. Back to the mayor and Mr. Trick when he says it's an important year, it's not election year, but something like that. So we're foreshadowing the whole arc of the mayor trying to ascend. So we really have foreshadowed all the key arcs in season three in this episode. 
So that is it for this week. Thank you again for listening and supporting the show. And I hope you will come back next Monday for Band Candy to see everyone regress, including Principal Snyder, who wants to be part of the cool kids, and Joyce and Giles, who spend some quality time together. You can tweet me, Lisa M. Lily, hashtag Buffy Story, or email me, Lisa at LisaLilly.com. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Thank you.